Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, October the 19th from a rather hot San Francisco. I'm going to turn my fans off if they're interfering with the sound. Shows my willingness to suffer for this show. Um, earlier this week, we did an interesting show with, um, not with Barbara Ironrack, because uh, she died uh, last year, uh, but with David Rosmarin um, on anxiety. He's a distinguished doctor, mental health doctor in Boston. Um, and he came on the show to celebrate a new book he's written uh, called Thriving with Anxiety. He believes that America has been over-medicalized in terms of anxiety. And he believes that many Americans, and young Americans in particular, need to, what he calls, thrive with anxiety. Uh, he has his own institute in Boston called the Center for anxiety. And at one point I said to him, has America become a Prozac nation? And he seemed to think it had. Of course, the reference to Prozac nation was from a 1994 book by Elizabeth Wurzel, another writer who's died since, discussing whether or not America became uh, a kind of throwaway remark that America had become a Prozac nation. A year before that book, Prozac Nation, which was a bestseller, came out. Uh, there was another book on Prozac called Listening to Prozac, uh, came out in 1993 by the psychiatrist Peter D. Kramer. Uh, and we are, if it's the right word, celebrating the 30th anniversary of Listening to Prozac. A new edition has come out with a new introduction from the great Peter Kramer. So he's back on the show. He's been on it before. Peter, I have to start with a simple question. I apologize for the rather long-winded introduction. Um, over the last 30 years since you wrote Listening to Prozac, has America become a Prozac nation? It has to some extent. Uh, I mean, we certainly write a lot more prescriptions for antidepressants than we did. I when I wrote this new introduction and afterwards, I tried to get a sense of what the increased use of antidepressants has been. And I figure that in a given year when Prozac uh, first appeared, a couple of years before I wrote the book, about two Americans in 50 were likely to have been on an antidepressant in a given year. And now the figure is up towards seven, uh, one in seven, maybe one in six. Uh, so, so that's a lot of people 15, on antidepressants. 15, 15%, 10 to yeah. 15%. So yeah. we all know someone on Prozac. Yeah, or something like it. I mean, there have been plenty of Me Too drugs since. So, yes. Was your book a warning, Peter? Was it, it's a kind of, I guess, medical futurism of a type? Uh, it was quite controversial. Not everybody agreed, but it was a bestseller. Uh, your your name has been forever associated, for better or worse, with the book. Do you see it as a, a, a warning? It, it was a warning. I <laughs> probably not an adequate warning. Um, I the book had a particular topic. I had given some patients Prozac shortly after it became available, 
And some of them came back and said, you know, I'm doing better and I'm not just over the episode of depression or uh, the upsurge of obsessionality, whatever I'd written for. Uh, they said, I'm uh, better than I ever have been. I'm just more comfortable socially, uh, had some other benefits. And I, uh, th these patients also seem to think the medicine defined them, that some of their obsessive traits that they thought were carefully nurtured parts of personality seemed just to disappear. They felt more comfortable without them. And they let the medicine define them, saying that those were sort of ailments, injuries, biological happenstance. Uh, so that was really the basis for the book. But when I saw how well those patients did, I warned that I suspected we would become subject as doctors to diagnostic bracket creep, which was what I called it. That is, we would define more things as depression uh, in order to justify using this kind of medication. So that was the warning. When I say inadequate, I don't think I understood how extensive the acceptance of these medicines would be. You know, I thought we would use them more, but I don't think as much more as we ended up using them. Now, there were a number of factors at play in that increase. One of them was increased research on the harm that depression does. And I think depression turns out, I wrote another book called Against Depression, which is about this issue, turns out to be much more harmful than we thought in the late 1980s, early 1990s. It really affects uh, hormonal glands, bones, uh, blood elements, uh, you know, risks of uh, deaths from heart disease and cancer. Uh, depression turns out to be very debilitating. And that risk extends to fairly low levels of depression. So that some of the expanded use was really based on uh, progress in medicine. Some of it was probably based on the sort of loosening that I predicted. Peter, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of uh, uh, Rosemarine. Do you know his work? No. Uh, David Rosemarine. But uh, I, I think you'd, I'd be curious as, as, as to your take on his book, Thriving and with Anxiety. Has, and, and, and much has been made, and we've done mm -hmm. many shows on what many people call our, our new age of anxiety, particularly with younger people in COVID and post-COVID America, has anxiety become uh, a word that's been confused with depression? When people talk about yeah. anxiety, are they talking about depression or vice versa, or are these two quite different words? Yeah, I think the conditions are different and in ways that matter. Uh, probably uh, genetically, a lot of the genetic studies show a strong linkage between uh, too much anxiety and depression, so that the disorders, you know, have some biological linkage. Uh, there's a lot of theory about what makes some people end up depressed and what makes some end up having anxiety symptoms more. But yeah, I don't know how strict a difference there is. I, I think although they're both considered spectrum disorders, right, you can have such low levels of, of depression that you're kind of merging into uh, sadness, ordinary sadness, reasonable reactions to events. Uh, but I think depression as a syndrome, the kind of thing where you're, you know, not thinking as quickly, you're not sleeping well, your eating is disturbed, you may be suicidal. 
that sort of syndromal picture and there are a number of other elements really is distinctive. It doesn't merge into sadness that easily, mere sadness. Uh, whereas anxiety is probably much more uniform up and down the scale. So it's you know, harder to give a cutoff point where you say the anxiety. I mean, clearly there are people who are so disabled by their anxiety that it, it, it is a, an illness, an ailment, something in need of, you know, whatever treatment we're willing to throw at it. Um, but, you know, where the cutoff is, I think, is even harder for anxiety than it is for depression. We are speaking with Peter D. Kramer, the author, back in 19... Uh, 93 of listening to Prozac, a, a classic analysis of the impact of Prozac on America and Americans. It's just come out in the 30th anniversary. Peter, how has it affected your life, this book? It shaped your life for better or worse. Did you expect it to have the kind of impact it would have? I, I certainly did not. I mean, I'd written a prior book, Moments of Engagement, which was very well received and you know, bought by maybe a few thousand people. Uh, when this book came out, uh, just before it came out, I was in San Francisco at a psychiatric conference. And on purpose, the publisher of Viking at the time uh, sent early copies to bookstores near the convention center. And I was asked to kind of pop over and sign them. And uh, I left the conference, went there, and the bookseller said they had no more copies. It was sold out. And there had been virtually no publicity for this book. I think I'd been on a Pacifica Berkeley station for one interview. Uh, <laughs> the publisher had more volumes coming. But that's so a punishment to authors when you have to do those Berkeley interviews. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasure at the time. You know, I'd been writing for years and had, you know, never been on a radio show. I was very happy. And uh, so, so I you were pretty much that's... unknown at the time. I mean, you were. Yeah. I, I was known in psychiatry. I had a uh, trade paper column I'd been writing once a month for years, but outside psychiatry, I'd say it was unknown. And uh, although I, my aspiration was to be a writer, I chose my editor for listening to Prozac because she was a good editor of fiction and had her promise there was a competition for this book. And when we sold the book to her, she committed to doing uh, a novel with me, which she did a couple of books later. A uh, very fine editor, uh, Nan Graham. Anyway, I called her up from San Francisco the second time this happened. I said, you know, I got the message machine. I said, I said, you know, I know you hate hearing this from authors, but I think something's happening. This is kind of remarkable to have the books appear in the bookstore and disappear that same day. And the book went on to become a national and international bestseller. A few countries in Europe, it was a bestseller. So did you uh, get a, I'm guessing you got a pretty small advance at the time. Yes, I got a very small advance. Uh, What's a very small, under $10,000? Yeah, yeah, I think it was uh, about about 10000 probably about 3000 on signing, 3000 on complete completion. And, 3, and how many copies have been sold in the last 30 years? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, somewhere between half a million and a million. I think it's probably, you know, probably all in. So everyone's done very well out of this book. You've become known for better or worse as Mr. Prozac, or certainly Mr. Dr. Prozac to you, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Listening to Prozac. Lots of debates um, about whether you were right or not in your Wikipedia page. There's a note about a 
a, a critical review in the New York Review of Books by Show in Newland. Other right. people like the book. The, the, the Kirkus Reviews thought it was a very good book, continues to think so. Have the debates dogged your professional life? You're now a professor at Brown uh, in the psychiatry yeah. and human behavior department. Right. No, uh, no, not at all. I think the subsequent science did enough to prove me right that I've been pretty much uh, Were you wrong on anything, Peter? Did you, oh, you regret anything wrong. in the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, you know, in the afterward, uh, Penguin was very generous. Actually, I'm going to hold up the new image just so you see that they really reworked the book so this yeah. is uh this is what the new one looks like it has a very extensive uh there we go uh very extensive forward and afterward behind me and the forward is about the cultural impact the kind of things you're asking about the impact on me my life the afterward is about the technical issues and um you know one thing i imply in the book it isn't quite said is that people may uh, have sharper thinking on the medicine. And I think that the consensus now is, yes, that happens, but it's largely due to the disappearance of the depression. It's not an independent effect. Whereas the other thing that I observed that people became more confident, uh, more socially at ease, uh, more like alpha animal mammals, you know, uh, that that really has been kind of borne out by the research. And it may be one of the primary things that these medicines do. They may, in some studies, they're better at the temperament and personality effects than they are at the antidepressant effects, which also, parenthetically, are quite substantial. Uh, I have another book out called Ordinarily Well, which is about the debate about whether antidepressants work at all. Are they glorified placebos or are they really specifics for depression? And, you know, very much come down on the side, not only that they do work, that we see them work in clinical practice, but that, that they have been shown objectively uh, to work and really, I think, have bettered many lives. I mean, many millions of lives. It might remind us, Peter, as well, um, we tend to sort of just talk about this thing called Prozac, but it's actually from something called flu fluoxetine. Uh, explain what that is and why it's sold under the brand name of Prozac. So all medicines tend to have generic names. That is the name that the profession agrees will be uh, used internationally and uh, brand names when particular companies produce them. And Prozac was one of those names that I'm sure went past an ad agency and, you know, what's going to sell. And it was in a moment when lots of X's and Z's were in the offing. So there was, you know, Trazodone and Trazodone is actually a generic name and Xanax and you know, that was sort of the hard, high Scrabble value names were, were popular at the time and actually have remained fairly popular since. So that was, uh, you know, was called Prozac, but the generic name is fluoxetine. And it was a real designer drug, one of the very first psychiatric designer drugs where starting with mouse models and moving up, it looked as if this medicine affected a certain uh, chemical in the brain, the way the, uh, the brain handles this chemical serotonin, and it was developed to that end. And I think when it appeared, doctors thought, well, that might be useful in certain ways. It might be the medicine would have uh, fewer immediate side effects. It might gain acceptance that way. I don't think anyone understood the extent to which these other effects on things like 
uh, confidence and social comfort would come into play. People really do feel and function off, you know, if they have the indications for giving the drug, they do feel and function uh, better on these drugs when they work. Uh, and sometimes that those claims of doing better, you know, don't correlate perfectly with the relief from depression. There's some other effects that go beyond the antidepressant effects and maybe separate from them. I mean, something in the afterward to the book, I have a, you know, approach very difficult scientific issues. I hope I make them simple enough, but there's a receptor in the brain uh, called TRAC-B. Uh, what that stands for is a complicated matter. There are a couple of things it stands for, but it, it may be that the most direct effects on depression are not through serotonin at all. They're through, through other receptors. So the medicine may be doing two things. One is combating depression and the other is having these personality effects. We're, we're very aware of these personality effects now, I think, you know, when I say these. Right. I, I want to get to the, the personality effects. I want to take a, a short break. But before we get there, Peter, um, in the 30 years since Prozac, a lot of uh, some of the research I, I was doing before our conversation talked about a, a new generation of depression drugs. Um, mm -hmm. Are, are they for real? Uh, are there post-Prozac drugs? Is, is is Prozac still the drug of choice? You call them the designer mm -hmm. drug? Well, um, you know, I think we have a lot of drugs that are probably equally good to Prozac, but in terms of really getting past, the field has been frustrated and frustrating. I think 30 years is a long time before taking a leap. We have a lot of good candidate drugs some of them the public's very aware of the idea that psilocybin or ketamine some of these um uh drugs that uh, uh change people's relationship to their consciousness that those may be useful and people are aware of there's another new drug out that relates to uh yeah. hormones that change in women after uh, they give birth uh, and these are drugs that are given just for a couple of weeks and people are expected who were depressed to do well on them for six, nine, or 12 months before they need another uh, dose. Uh, there are actually a number of things being tested that I think are promising. However, none of them is proven in the way that the current, you know, earlier drugs are. Uh, there's a funny study of ketamine. So ketamine was used as an anesthetic before it was used in lower doses as an antidepressant. And somebody thought, well, let's do a really blind study where no one knows what's going on. So they took patients who were depressed and had some indication for surgery, like a complex broken leg. And some of the patients they gave standard anesthesia to, some of them they gave ketamine in the dose that it's given for depression. And if the patients needed more anesthetic that was filled out by other drugs. Well. Interestingly, these patients did pretty well post-surgery, perhaps a lot of post-surgical patients do, they're in less pain and so on. Uh, but the standard anesthetic did as well as the ketamine. So when you, you know, the problem with testing ketamine is people know if they uh, start uh, becoming dissociated and have party drug effects from ketamine. So it's hard to do a blind study where Patients don't know whether they're on ketamine. Well, here, because the patients who were anesthetized, they didn't know whether they were on ketamine. They didn't do any better than the patients who weren't on ketamine. I think ketamine is very promising. I think it's going to turn out to work for real. 
I just mentioned this study as a way of saying it's kind of early going for the post-Prozac drugs. Well, we are listening once again to Prozac with Peter D. Kramer, 30 years after he wrote his original classic study, You're listening to Prozac. It's back out with a new intro and uh, postscript from uh, Peter, uh, Peter, not Peter Prozac, Peter Kramer himself. I want to thank uh, before we talk a little bit more about personality, I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. All our guests will get an annual subscription. It's a great new publication dealing with all sorts of issues in our culture and politics. It's going to run a short ad, and then we'll be back with uh, Peter Kramer to talk about Prozac and perhaps the end of personality. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Peter D. Kramer, the original author of Listening to Prozac back in 1993, 30 years ago. New edition of the book is just out. Uh, Peter, one of the descriptions of your book suggests that it refers to something called the end of personality, or at least this was what your publisher, a question that it asked, what exactly is personality and how might Prozac be challenging the end of personality? I don't know about the phrase, the end of personality, but you know, personality is how you typically respond to challenges and how you behave in social situations, how you see yourself. And uh, the undergirding of personality in psychiatry is called temperament. It's sort of the uh biological substrate for the way you typically interact with the world and i think that you know of course personality is the central target of psychotherapy uh, for most of my early career if somebody had personality problems or if somebody was self-destructive or uh you know very anxious in social situations we approach that exclusively with psychotherapy. And I've said something about how I was driven to write this book, but another way of putting that is that I used to keep notes about medication when I medicated patients, which parenthetically wasn't all that often, but I kept separate sheets of paper apart from my psychotherapy notes. And I noticed that those pages were being filled with scribblings that had to do with personality and personality change that the medication pages were looking a bit like uh, the psychotherapy pages. And I wondered whether I had in effect with Prozac and then Zoloft, which came along uh, shortly after, uh, found a sort of co-therapist that I was doing. And I did had in my early training also done co-therapy for groups, you know, where we had two therapists. And I felt a little bit like I had a co-therapist and I thought I should explain to myself and others what, what that was about. But yes, I think uh, there are some very hard to change aspects of personality. And what was a great 
pleasure about the good responses to this drug, and we can talk about bad responses too, but what was a pleasure about the good responses is that uh, the personality change was much uh, more rapid and decided than what you typically saw with, with psychotherapy. And when I say co-therapist, that really does characterize how I use these drugs. So it turns out that what these drugs probably mostly do is uh, kind of unstuck, unstick the switch. If we think of depression as a stuck switch problem, they take people with repetitive self-hating thoughts and reopen the brain to new possibilities. And I think when that's done in conjunction with psychotherapy, that is you make the brain better able to learn again, and you have some learning that directs you in a positive direction, that that combination turns out to be especially potent. You talked about the blind tests earlier. If you were, if you were able to do blind tests of patients who did and didn't take Prozac, do you think you could tell? Yeah, that's what this book uh, ordinarily well is about. That is how drugs are tested. So. People think about psychotherapeutic drugs as if they were relatively untested, and the opposite is true. You know, the first double-blind testing was done with antibiotics for things like tuberculosis in World War II, and the uh, early modern uh, antidepressants and antipsychotic drugs came out shortly after in the 1950s, and I think the drug companies understood these had to be tested the way antibiotics were. So they, you know, started doing these tests where you gave a dummy pill to some patients and the active pill to others, and you compared the results. And sometimes they gave sort of active placebos. They gave dummy pills that had side effects but weren't meant to uh, be helpful, and uh, you know, active pills that also had side effects. And these medicines worked. So in America, there's something called the Kefauver-Harris Act, which uh, said that drugs didn't just have to be safe, they actually had to be useful uh, in order to be marketed by drug companies. And the Kefauver-Harris Act requirements were modeled on the testing of drugs like antidepressants. So the testing of antidepressants goes way back in the history of new drugs, you know, modern new drugs in, in the States and around the world. And uh, the antidepressants have tested out very well. But that's what that book is about, because there's a lot of controversy about that. There are lots of people who claim the opposite. And I uh, try to examine those arguments, as I say in this earlier book, ordinarily well. You described earlier that Prozac unsticks the switch and enables us to maybe realize new possibilities. Does that make the type of personality who... Or the, the, the type of person who takes Prozac, does that intensify um, their personalities? Does that enrich them or does it dampen them in terms of knowing whether or not a patient was on Prozac? Does that make them more or less muted? Well, I mean, you know, I think there are different effects. Uh, these medicines are meant to affect serotonin. They probably, as I say, affect this other receptor, track B. Um, none of these drugs is fully clean. If you take them long enough at high enough doses, the ones meant to affect serotonin affect another transmitter called dopamine, and that can that can dull people. It can mute their personality. The effect that we're talking about with um, 
reopening the brain is really quite quite dramatic. If you take an infant, a young child, at a critical moment when we're developing our binocular vision, our ability to you know, use both eyes to triangulate and tell the distance of things from us. Uh, if a, a child has to have an eye patch during that time, the brain may be less willing to engage that eye and they'll develop what's called amblyopia. And in rats and mice, in adult rats and mice, you can reopen that critical interval. You can make the, the, the brain willing to adopt the lazy eye um, by giving the, the rat or mouse Prozac. And less reliably, you can do that in, in humans as well. So we're really talking about making the brain more flexible for new learning uh, you know, in, in remarkable ways. But that sort of is the model of one of the current models for how the antidepressants work. Uh, there's some studies out of England showing that very early, before we see strong antidepressant effects, which can take weeks to occur, uh, patients on these medicines see themselves more favorably. They look at images and tell more favorable stories about the images so that there's some uh, change in sort of affective tone, some change in uh, the way we face the world with these medicines, even before uh, the depression starts to remit. And I think those same uh, researchers uh, think that the way these drugs work is, as I say, through this combination of uh, freeing up the brain in some ways, and then also having some more favorable input that, that directs, um, you know, directs the new learning. Peter, 50 years before you wrote Listening to Prozac, Huxley, of course, wrote Brave New World, a, a yeah. warning about a, a society uh, in which everybody was on, if not Prozac, what he called Soma. Yes. Uh, is there a danger there? Are there dystopian elements that yes. you I mean, about? Have, have they been in some ways realized uh, in, in the 30 years since Prozac? Well, that was the warning also in listening to Prozac was sort of implicit coercion. You know, if you're in a firm where salespeople have to be, uh, you know, upbeat and assertive, uh, are you going to be pushed into having to take medication to have those personality effects? I wasn't sure that those, you know, I, I don't think reliably we can just give anyone these medicines and expect those effects, but they're there. Uh, so, yes, I think that was sort of the worry from the start. Uh, and that if we really can mute melancholy across the board, are we going to have a culture that demand, you know, has, is less tolerant of melancholy? I don't think that ha has happened. I think we, you know, we still glorify melancholy in certain ways and even including ways that are dangerous. I, I had an intermediate book called Against Depression Between Ordinarily Well and Listening to Prozac where I talked a lot about the romanticization of melancholy. But um, yes, I think those are those were all risks. We'd like to be better at treating depression. I think, you know, we're happy to face those risks once we're better at the sort of the medical end of this, which is just um, making depressive episodes uh, shorter and making depression a less recurrent ailment. I mean, that's the real problem with depression is largely not the single episodes, although, Obviously, those can be awful, but um, the sense that in a lot of people, depression is sort of a lifelong career, that they have 
so many recurrences that it's just uh, the dominating feature in their lives. Peter, you and I are of similar generation, what people call the, the boomer generation. A lot has been made on these generational conflicts, Generation X, Generation yeah. Z. Is there a generational element here in terms of Prozac? Has Prozac, do you think, shaped younger generations? Is it the thing that, or one of the things that makes the boomer generation different from Gen X or Gen Z? I think it has. You know, uh, we talk a lot about increases in depression and anxiety in the young and increases in treatment. There was a lot of treatment when you are in my generation, say was college aged or went through college. It was psychotherapy. And I think, you know, that's a great age for psychotherapy. You really can uh, make dramatic changes in yourself if you start working on yourself, um, you know, in late adolescence and early adulthood. I would say now that lots of students of the same age come into college on Prozac or similar drugs or are given them fairly rapidly, uh, you know, or, or there have to be a college, but at that age uh, when things go wrong. And, you know, certainly in your and my generation, antidepressants were not given for first episodes of depression unless they were very severe. They ex there were antidepressants before Prozac, as I say, since the late 1950s, but um, they were reserved for, you know, sort of tough third episodes. Uh, so I think we are seeing a very different way of, of treating people. Now, in, in some ways, that's very good. There aren't enough people in the specialty mental health sector, caregivers. Uh, it's great that primary care doctors now are, do a better job of recognizing depression and treating it. Uh, but I think there's some downside as well. You've been on the show before, Peter. Uh, you wrote a a novel, you said that you're in a, you, you wrote this first book uh, in order to make yourself a novelist. You've written a number of novels, one uh, about Donald Trump. You were on a, a year ago talking about uh, what we called when we made the listener notes, the great man's inner life. Is there any connection between Trump and Prozac? You know, I, I, I think that my Trump book, Death of the Great Man, is largely a psychotherapy book. Uh, it's the about the interaction between a despotic, toxic populist, very narcissistic, probably paranoid, and a uh, psychiatrist who's really very committed to an intimate, generous form of psychotherapy and the difficulties of being so close to uh, such a sort of punishing patient. Uh, so I, you know, I don't, I don't see that. The book is almost, the novel is almost written as if medication didn't exist as an alternative. Right. Could um, Trump have done with a, a good dose of Prozac? Might it make him a little bit more palatable? Yeah, I, I don't want to diagnose Trump or say what would be good for him, but I think in general, we have, when I say we can treat personality, maybe, it's not the disordered personalities that make people, uh, you know, sort of dangerous in their interactions with other people. Those just don't do as well on medication. It's not that they're never useful, but I would say that's that's not what we're best at. So, yeah. Well, fi finally, Peter, um, we've been doing quite a lot of shows on the new fashion for psychedelics. We did one a couple of weeks ago with Andy Mitchell as a Really interesting new book out, the 
uh, called 10 Trips, The New Reality of, of Psychedelics. And, and like you, he has a very interesting take on all this stuff. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mitchell's work. Is there a connection now between this new fashion or the 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 fact that psychedelics are back into fashion and maybe yeah. a, a post Prozac America? Yeah, I know. I think so. I think that part of what made psychedelics so much more acceptable lately is that they have tested out well sometimes in depression and particularly in very hard to treat forms of depression. There's something called psychotic depression, which is uh, depression with some level of delusionality. That's very hard to treat. And uh, I think psychedelics really made their way back into the profession through their ability sometimes to uh, make a dent in that. So I think that the antidepressant effects have more broadly legitimated uh, psychedelics. Um, you know, I guess if I were writing, you know, listening to uh, uh, psilocybin, uh, I would have as many warnings as I had about uh, Prozac and probably more. But the psychedelics also unstick the switch, to borrow that phrase from you. Yes, yes, they absolutely do. So in some of these uh, tests where we find uh, these uh, resetting effects from uh, drugs like Prozac, we find them even more with the psychedelics. That does seem to be, uh, you know, to the extent that these have antidepressant effects, it may be through that same mechanism. And it may be, I'm sorry, <clears throat> it may be stronger in the case of psychedelics.